Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben Mann hoch war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Reich History Podcast. Chris and I are excited to welcome another guest to the show today. We're going to be talking with Roger Free about his new book, Not in My Family, German Memory and Responsibility After the Holocaust. Roger is a registered psychologist whose work spans the fields of psychoanalysis, philosophy, and history, and he teaches educational and counseling psychology at Simon Fraser University where his research addresses the complex interrelations between historical trauma, culture, memory, and human interaction. Not In My Family is hot off the press, published in 2017 from Oxford, and has received widespread acclaim for its intensely personal confrontation with the Nazi past in the author's own family. Roger's work explores the silence that surrounded his grandfather's membership in the Nazi party itself. Discovering a photograph of his grandfather in the paramilitary uniform of the National Socialist Motor Corps while visiting relatives in Germany prompted him to ask uncomfortable questions about those things that had remained unspoken. By exploring the attempts to distance so-called ordinary Germans like Free's grandparents from Nazism, or to displace these memories with private histories of suffering, the book chronicles his confrontation with the process of remembering and forgetting common in many other families of this generation. Not in My Family has received multiple awards since its release last year now, winning the 2017 Canadian Jewish Literary Award and, as of today, the 2018 Western Canada Jewish Book Award. Roger Free has been so good as to join us to chat about his work. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, and congratulations on the latest award. Thank you, Ryan and Chris. It's an honor to be here. Before we begin talking about your book today, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I am a practicing psychologist and psychotherapist, but I'm also a trained historian and philosopher in that I became and worked as a historian and a philosopher, and then later retrained as a psychologist. So my approach to this book is both a fundamentally personal one in that it's my own family narrative, but it's also from the perspectives of having an understanding of what it might mean to be a historian, as well as speaking to the past as a psychologist and a psychotherapist. And bringing both of these different disciplinary perspectives to bear, to try to make sense of what occurred in my family, as well as to try to make sense more broadly of what it means to to address the history of the Nazi past and the, the perpetration of the Holocaust as a German descendant. 
Well, this book is very much the story of you and your grandfather. What is that story? It's a story of family discovery. It's a story of seeking to understand the past that we've inherited in the present. It's a story of trying to make sense of what it means to live with the Nazi past in the present. Ultimately, it's a, it's a personal story that involves my discovery of the fact that my grandfather was a member of the Nazi party, uh, something which was not openly discussed in my family, even though my family talked often about the history of the Third Reich and about the moral obligations to remember the Holocaust. Could you tell us a bit about your grandfather's story as you've reconstructed it uh, about his life? Yeah, um, what I learned about my grandfather came both from uh, what I learned from my parents uh, it came from my grandfather himself, whom I knew as a child and uh, was able to interact with on numerous occasions as a child. And it's come from uh, the archival research I've done to try to seek to understand what actually took place. My grandfather was born in 1906. Uh, his own uh, father was in World War One. was a participant in World War One as a German soldier on the Western Front for four years. Um, both my grandfather and his younger brother, two years younger, were participants in what was known as the National Socialist Motor Corps. And this was a paramilitary organization of the Nazi party which gave uh, largely middle-class members the opportunity to drive cars and automobiles and learn more about them in terms of their functioning and repair, but was also uh, kind of an outreach on the part of the Nazi party to indoctrinate and include the middle class in particular in the ideology of the party. I hadn't known about my grandfather's participation in the NSKK, nor had I known about the fact that he became a member of the Nazi party in 1937. He had applied one year earlier. My grandfather was an artisan and an artist who spent the years um, of the 1920s into the early 1930s in Berlin and then returned in the early 1930s to Hanover, which was the city uh, where he grew up and where his family lived. I don't know a great many details, but it does appear to all extents and purposes that my grandfather was a supporter of the party. Certainly his application to the Nazi party suggests that. In terms of my grandfather's activities during the period of World War II, um, because of his uh, work um, as a as a metal worker in essence um, he was hired by a company that produced uh, airplane parts and he was employed as a civilian worker during much of the war in early 1944 he was then drafted into the Luftwaffe and participated in the Luftwaffe as a manufacturer and designer 
of the B-2 rocket and uh, spent the remainder of the war active in the V-2 program. Uh, in terms of who my person, who my grandfather was as a person, um, I remember him as a very kind individual, someone who was very caring about others, uh, someone who was always uh, interested in the events of the world around him. Certainly, he was very special to me, in part because I had only one grandfather. My other grandfather, my parental grandfather, had died as a German soldier in early 1942. So given that this this book is so deeply personal and you went through this process of learning about your grandfather after having known him uh, as a man, uh, as a family member, what difficulties did that bring up in telling this story? Well, I, I think it was the struggle to, in a way, make sense of how it was that this man I knew as a child and who was very meaningful to me could at the same time in an earlier stage of his life have been a member of the Nazi party and to all extents and purposes a supporter of the Nazi party and the regime and that is something I still puzzle about to this day. And I imagine many other German descendants like myself puzzle with that. Certainly, it speaks to the importance of his uh, empathy, trying to put ourselves in the place of those who lived during that period. But how was it that my grandfather could have become an enabler of the regime? Uh, certainly, I have not found any evidence to suggest that he was a perpetrator or that he was directly involved in the genocidal crimes of the Nazi regime. But again, to all extents and purposes, he was an enabler. And how is it possible that this man I knew at a later stage in life could at the same time have been an enabler? Uh, it's, it, it, if I'm sounding befuddled, it's because to this day I am. And it raises for me the very personal question of how does perhaps complacency in the presence of terror and authoritarianism become complicity in that terror and authoritarianism. And it's something that is certainly both about the past, but I think just as relevant today. And so the book is is trying to come to terms with it. It's trying to make sense of this question. And it also fundamentally is about the question of memory. What is it that we speak about when we refer to our past, to our family's past, and certainly for members of nations that are carrying with them a history of perpetration? What is it we speak to? What is it we speak about? What is it we openly acknowledge? And what is it that remains veiled in silence. This point about memory, the connection between identity and memory was something that I found very interesting while I was reading your book. You wear several hats over the course of your investigation of your grandfather's past and in your own memories of your own past and negotiating this history. At times you are Canadian, at other times you are German, at other times you are Swiss. I was wondering how 
you saw identity play into the writing and the thinking about writing this book. So when I speak about identity in the book, I, I think I'm referring to how we're positioned in culture and in history. And it's rare for any of us to be able to choose how we are positioned. I, as I said, inherited a German family history. And I should perhaps say a few words about my, my background and the background of my family. My family is German on both sides. Most of my family continues to reside in Germany today. My parents, who were both born in 1935 in the city of Hanover, emigrated to Canada in the late 1950s, and then in the early 1980s actually returned to Europe. So I was born in North America in 1965, and I grew up in Canada, but I also spent time in Germany as a child, uh, visiting with family, and then I spent considerably more time both in Switzerland and in Germany after my parents returned to Europe. So I, I grew up with, a, I guess I could say, a, a bicultural identity. I also grew up speaking German. German was, in fact, my first language, which isn't unusual for the uh, children of immigrants. And I grew up with a sense of German history that was communicated to me by my family and by the German immigrant community in which I was raised, as well as a sense of Canadian history that I learned at school and that I learned from those who were around me from the very earliest age as a child. And so I from a very young age, had both of these identities. Um, you mentioned Switzerland. Um, my parents actually had moved to Switzerland, and I lived there for some time. And uh, we also have family in Switzerland. So that added a, a third dynamic. And what I found in living in each of these countries and what I found in terms of interacting with individuals in each of these countries is that depending on where we find ourselves, where we're positioned, we tend to look at history somewhat differently based on our background, based on what we learn in school, based on what we learn from society, and based on the broader historical narratives of the societies in which we live. And each of those societies and as individuals carry particular experiences of the past. And certainly one of the things I suggest in the book is that how the German past is talked about, how it is experienced, how it is felt by Germans, especially when they're amongst other Germans, may be different than it is when one lives in the United States or in Canada or indeed England or in any of the countries um, that made up the Allies during World War II, because there's a different narrative of history. There's a different sense of history and the experiences of what individuals carried with them from the war in the 1930s. Uh, you recount an anecdote uh, in the book about uh, encountering a bunker on the French coast while in the company of some German students. And that seems particularly relevant in this context. Could you tell us a little bit more about, about that? 
Sure. Um, I attended university in England, and I lived in England for about 10 years. And during that period, on a number of occasions, I spent time in France as a language student um, to improve my language skills. On one of those occasions, I spent time on the west coast of France in a city that was uh, located very close to what was known as the Atlantic Wall, which were a series of German fortifications that were built to repel an expected Allied attack uh, in World War II. Um, these fortifications were built by French citizens, oftentimes taking the form of forced labor. And many of these fortifications still exist uh, to this day. Obviously, they're not in the state they were then, but uh, they can still be seen to this day. What I describe in the book is a situation in which I found myself with uh, two students from Germany. And uh, in fact, during that particular sojourn in France, I found that I was improving my German more than my, my, my French because uh, many of the students were from Germany. And together, we went to one of these beaches, and one of my fellow language students who was in Germany uh, said uh, in German, essentially, hey, the lads were here before us as uh, we saw these fortifications. And I found myself really experiencing two different thoughts and feelings in that moment. On the one hand, I was, in a sense, being identified as a, as a fellow German. And growing up in Canada uh, with a German family history was at times not easy, particularly around uh, Remembrance Day um, ceremonies, where the stories of World War II were shared, where Allied soldiers or um, people who had been in the war um, were invited to come to speak at schools about their experiences. And I found myself transfixed by these stories and fascinated by them, but at the same time innately aware that my family history was on the side of the aggressors and the perpetrators in World War II. And, and I experienced a sense of, of shame about that. And in this moment um, in France, where this German student made this remark about these fortifications, I was suddenly included amongst other Germans and um, individuals who probably had similar family histories to my own. And that was an unusual and unfamiliar experience, that sense of inclusion. At the same time, the remark was made in German. And what really struck me, since I grew up in Canada and spoke English, was how that remark would be heard or received by someone else. Now, I'm not just suggesting that um, Germans in general would agree with that remark. Many, I think, would be rather horrified by it because it was made in a joking fashion. But there was a way in which this remark somehow became, it felt to me, permissible since it was made in German amongst Germans. If I had spoken only English, 
or indeed if there had been people present who were the descendants of victims of Nazi aggression, would that remark have been made in the same way? Would this fellow have thought it, but perhaps not have said it? Would there have been, on his part, a sense of empathy? How would that remark have been heard by others? It was made in German. It wasn't made in English or French. And I think there was a reason for that. So I use that example as a way to think about how history might be talked about or expressed or related in different linguistic and cultural contexts. And I'm not thereby in any way suggesting that individuals who live in Germany would speak about history in this manner. This particular individual did. But I am suggesting that it is more likely that history gets spoken about in particular ways in particular contexts. How is it that the linguistic context shapes the way historical events are remembered? I think that's an immensely important question. I can only attempt to begin to answer that, but I think language and culture are inherently bound to one another. We experience culture, we're introduced to culture, culture is communicated to us through language. And a fundamental part of culture is history, since definitions of culture, experiences of culture have a history, and that history is communicated from generation to generation. So I think it's enormously important to understand history and culture and language as, as interlinked. And at least to my understanding, that is why in particular linguistic contexts, one narrative about history makes sense, whereas another might not. There were a few other stories in the book that seemed to really highlight the issues that you were grappling with, uh, and I was hoping that you could share a few of them with us and with the audience uh, and tell us a bit more. Could you tell us about your grandfather's medals and how you came to possess them? My grandfather was an avid coin collector, and he introduced me to coin collecting at an early age. And I became, I, I think, fascinated with coins as, uh, as a result. Coins in some way carrying with them a history that goes back and that I think speaks to the particular era in which they were first produced and used. And when I saw him for the last time, uh, I believe I was uh, 13 or 14 years of age. He had, he, he said uh, that I would be inheriting his coin collection when he was no longer living. And in fact, he died a year later and uh, I inherited a part of the coin collection. And amidst those coins, I discovered a number of medals. I, I describe this in the book. Two of the medals actually belonged to my grandfather's father, so my great-grandfather, who, as I mentioned previously, 
was a soldier uh, in World War I on the Western Front. Uh, one of those medals had to do with the fact that he was injured. Another one, to my understanding, had to do with the, the bravery he showed. The third medal left me feeling distinctly uneasy. It's not a medal I recognized, and uh, it was a, a cross, and in the center of the cross was a swastika. I didn't know about the medal, and uh, when I asked my parents, they weren't familiar with the medal either, and uh, it was not talked about. And that medal became a representation for the fact that my grandfather's participation in World War II, my grandfather's seeming support for the Nazi regime as a member of the Nazi party, wasn't a point of discussion. It was almost, we could say, a no-go area. Now, I think it's hugely important to understand that my family wasn't unusual in that sense. This was the case in a great many German families, as I soon discovered when I began to research this. And that was that the Nazi past was often silenced, in particular, family particip participation in the Nazi past was silenced. So this, this medal, in a sense, became a, a symbol of that, of that silencing and uh, led me to begin to ask, obviously, more questions about the past in my family. After you inherited this medal, uh, you wound up throwing it away. And I wonder why. It, it seems that having inherited this medal, there, there would be no more fitting symbol for inheriting guilt from your grandfather. And you seem to be trying very hard to confront this guilt that, that he's passed on to you. So why did you destroy this symbol rather than preserve it? I think that's a really good question. It's one that I've often asked myself. It's perhaps important to provide some context in that the discovery of the medal occurred uh, when I was in my late teens. Uh, and uh, early 20s. And what I initially did was I, I asked about the medal. Um, others in my family didn't know about it. And then I shut it away. And I sought not to think about it anymore. And what I've come to realize that is that in so doing, I was perhaps repeating the narrative of my family, the narrative of silence in which I'd grown up, um, in a sense, out of sight, out of mind. Several years later, I took out the medal again and really asked myself, what should I do with it? I think the truth is that at that point, I wasn't ready or able to research the past in a way that I would be able to today. And I reached the decision that I didn't want to possess the metal. I didn't want to own it. And so I chose to throw it away. And it's a question I've been asked by readers before. Why did I do that? Perhaps if I'd kept it, 
and confronted it in a more detailed fashion, in a more historical fashion, researched it, I would have learned more. But uh, in truth, at that point in life, I, I wasn't ready, and I don't think I, I had the skills to do that. So in asking about the metal, you had mentioned or used the term guilt. I, I think for German descendants like myself, particularly German descendants who've grown up in, in North America, there is a sense of inherited guilt and shame about the Nazi past. And it's perhaps helpful to share with you that uh, I grew up as a child in an environment in which my childhood friends and my schoolmates were all either the children or the grandchildren of Canadian and British soldiers who fought against the Germans. And the shame or the guilt that I experienced was obviously not my own guilt, since I was not a participant in that time in history. But it was a guilt that was associated with a past that I had inherited. And I think it's useful to know that to understand perhaps how I have come to confront with uh, the history I've inherited, but also I think struggled with the history I've inherited. And previously I mentioned the differences of identity between German or Swiss or Canadian or indeed American. And I think this again speaks to this question of how do we confront history based on where we grow up and what the background of our own family and community and society is. Well, you speak about this confrontation with the past. And as historians, we would be remiss not to ask you about your trip to the archives. What was your mindset headed in to go and research your grandfather? So the book or the journey that became the book began with citing a photograph of my grandfather that I'd never seen before. In part, I realized later on, I was unfamiliar with many of the photographs of my family's past since my parents left uh, Germany for Canada and the photographs of my family's past largely remained uh, with my grandparents in Germany. And so many of the photographs are ones that I didn't confront until much later. And it was on the occasion of a visit to Germany that I glimpsed uh, this unfamiliar photograph of my grandfather as a young man. And when I first saw that photograph, a lot of the questions about the past, questions perhaps having to do with my grandfather's medal, suddenly in some way were answered. My grandfather, it turned out, had a history of participation in the Nazi past, one that was not talked about. And this was, an, in fact, an image that seemed to suggest uh, my grandfather's participation in the NSKK, the National Socialist Motor Corps. That led me to begin researching my family, but it took a while before I was even ready to do so. And that research 
was composed of different parts. It was composed of asking a lot of questions of my family, of my parents. And my parents became very much participants in this process of understanding and discovery. It was composed of trying to understand my own memories of the past, my own interactions with my grandparents growing up. And ultimately, it was also composed of archival research. But I didn't, uh, it, a period of some four to five years took place before I was ready to go to the archives. And again, uh, perhaps for some listeners who are historians, that might seem strange. Why wouldn't I go to the archives right away? And I think there, in all honesty, I would answer that, um, first of all, I wasn't familiar with the archives, that it was even possible to do that. But secondly, I wasn't ready because I was enormously fearful of what I might find. And it was very important to me that I know and discover as much about my family's past through the memories, through the actual experiences of my parents as children during the war, through letters that I was able to find before I visited the archives. When I ultimately did go to Berlin and uh, when I visited the federal archives there and inquired with different archives having to do with um, the different military branches, what I found out uh, to large measure substantiated what I had already discovered and knew at that point. Nevertheless, I remember very well the visit uh, and uh, traveling from central Berlin out to where the archives are located, feeling immense anxiety about what I would find there. And uh, these archives house uh, essentially all the uh, known um, information about uh, participants in the Nazi regime from its different branches. And there was a sense of eeriness when I went in there and saw these these thick file folders of uh, that clearly belonged to different individuals and imagined what might be in those file folders. As far as my own grandfather was concerned, there was very little detailed information. Certainly, uh, there was his uh, Nazi Party membership card, and there was an earlier correspondence he had had with the Nazi party um, around his application. And there was a period of one year um, from spring of 1936 to spring of 1937, a one-year gap between the correspondence with the Nazi authorities and actually being granted the formal party membership. Now, when you saw his file, uh, I understand that it it labeled him as a former communist, or at least it said AECOM, and he was also a deserter. Did discovering this, that he had moments in his past that demonstrated that he was not necessarily completely behind Nazism and the regime, did that change your view of your grandfather at all? It helped me to understand that the past is oftentimes far more complex than we can grasp. And that my grandfather's reasons for joining were certainly far more complex than a single photograph of him in a paramilitary uniform 
would suggest. I wish I had an opportunity to ask my my grandfather the questions I puzzle over. Certainly I've asked other family members, all of whom themselves puzzle over this past. Yes, uh, the Nazi party correspondence seemed to suggest that there was a question of whether he had been, if not a Communist Party member, a participant in left-wing causes. And it appears to have been the case that whilst he was in Berlin, he was involved, uh, to the extent I've been able to discover, in um, union organization. And it provides a much broader picture of my grandfather. Now, as strange as it might sound, we know from history that uh, many individuals who were members of the left during the 1920s and 1930s actually switched allegiances and became members of the Nazi party or supporters of the Nazi party. Uh, he was, in fact, to all extents and purposes, one of those individuals. The other thing I had learned already as a child was that very late in the war, in fact, in the, as far as I can tell, in the early spring of 1945, my grandfather was given an opportunity to visit his family in Hanover, uh, during which he was also asked to requisition some parts uh, for the V-2 rockets. And he chose to remain with his family in hiding rather than return to his unit. So he was, in fact, uh, a deserter. Now, again, that really stands out. And when I look at his past, when I think about my grandfather, I ask myself what it was that led him to desert at that point and how I should understand that. My grandfather shared this information himself without, as far as I can remember, a hint of shame, which suggests that uh, he wasn't, when push came to shove, a fully-fledged supporter of the Nazi regime, certainly not someone who was willing to support them till the bitter end, as uh, many others did. On the other hand, we also know from history that there were a great many Nazi supporters who in the last months of the war had, for lack of a better word, a convenient change of heart. Right. So again, when we look at the past, we see it from afar. And I think Historians in particular try to seek to put themselves in the shoes of the actors at that time and imagine what it was like, but we, we don't ultimately know the reasons for people's um, actions. And I, I, I puzzle over these facts, but I think ultimately for me it suggests a, a far more complex picture of who my grandfather was. Well, at the core of this book is your concept of learned history versus lived history. Could you explain a little bit more about this idea to our audience and, and what tension you see between the two? So I use the term learned history and lived history in my book to distinguish between two kinds of historical understanding. And Learned history is something I use to refer to factual history that we learn in school, that we learn from society, that we learn 
through our visits to museums and through our reading of historical texts. And factual history is enormously important. At the same time, I suggest that each of us carries with us a lived experience of the past. My lived experience of the past was that of a German descendant whose parents lived as children during World War II and during the bombing campaign on Hanover, whose grandparents were participants in the Nazi past and enablers of the Nazi regime. And that lived history both supports the learned history of the past that I received as a child through school and through society and through museum visits, but at times it, there's also a tension between the two. And in this book, I sought to very much speak from the perspective of what the lived history of my family was and what my own lived history was. And it's perhaps also helpful to share that this idea of lived experience is perhaps particularly relevant in my work as a psychotherapist because of all of us carry with us a, a, a sort of cognitive and intellectual understanding of the world around us, but we also have an emotional experience of the world around us. And sometimes that emotional experience will support our intellectual understanding of what's happening, and other times it will conflict with it. And I think it's the same for our sense of, of history. So we may have a sense of what our family experienced in the past that contradicts or at least stands opposed to our learned understanding of the past. And this can oftentimes cause tension for us. I think you're already touching on it in an important way, but could you tell us a bit more about what you see this concept of lived versus learned history as adding to the dialogue between historians? I think I would answer that in a number of different ways. Um, first and foremost, um, historians are both professionals who seek to understand the past, but they're also individuals who carry a lived experience of the past. And historians are themselves certainly shaped by the culture and the language and the context in which they live and by the grander narratives of the past. And I think we, we always need to be conscious of that when we seek to understand history. So I've spoken a number of times about a tension between the experiential history we have of the past and our learned understanding of the past. Let me give you another example or illustration from the book, perhaps the, the actual context of and reason for writing this book. And that is a distinction that can be made in German memory of the Holocaust in terms of collective memory of the Nazi past in the Holocaust and German family memory of the Nazi past and the Holocaust. As we know, in post-war West Germany, 
beginning in the mid-1960s, there was a concerted effort to address Germany's role as the perpetrators of these heinous crimes that became and that composed the Holocaust. And by the early 1970s, this had become a federal policy um, that led to the teaching of German students, German school children, about the Nazi past and the Holocaust. And this played an enormously important role in seeking to address the incredible and at times unfathomable wrongs and crimes that were committed by the Nazi regime and the German people. And it became a fundamental part of the West German um, national identity. At the same time, German family memory was often distanced from collective memory. So whilst collective memory sought to understand and address fully and openly Nazi participation in the past and in the Holocaust, and by Nazi participation, of course, I mean Nazi perpetration and German perpetration of the Holocaust. German family memory often sought to create a distancing from the participation of family members in that Nazi past. Oftentimes, the participation of family members in the Nazi past was cordoned off and became a space of silence. And family members across generations would become participants in that community of silence. And this was going on and has happened at the same time that collective national memory has sought to fundamentally address the past in very, very important ways. And this, I think, speaks again to the difference between learned history, the collective sense of the past that we speak about in society, in schools, in history texts, in museums, and the family experience of the past, which is obviously similar, similar to and yet can be distant from the learned history and collective memory of the past. So you grew up in an immigrant community, in a community that, that wasn't necessarily exposed to the same learned history as those who stayed in Germany. Did you observe any differences in how the lived histories and the public memory developed in Canada, in your immigrant community, as opposed to how they developed in Germany? It's somewhat difficult for me to speak to those experiences now from my perspective as an adult. But one of the things I have researched is how German families that emigrated in the decades after World War II to Canada, but also to the United States, remember the past. And what typically has happened, and I say typically because I'm making a, obviously a gross generalization, is that German families 
have tended to focus on the experiences and the hardships related to immigration and not on what took place prior to immigration, particularly what took place during the 1930s and during World War II in terms of participation in the Nazi past. And it can often appear as though the focus on the hardships and experiences of immigration have taken the place of speaking about the Nazi past and family participation in the Nazi past. So I, I think that's, that's perhaps an example of, of that process that I've been describing, but also that you're asking about within uh, immigrant communities. Yeah, I, I guess I'm asking if the, if the community affects the way the, the lived history develops. Do you think that there was something, and now I'm generalizing, uh, something special about the group of people who chose to emigrate? Was this some kind of effort to escape the past, and might that have shaped the way they developed their own personal and family narratives? I think we need to talk about who German immigrants were in the decades after World War II. There were up to some 350,000 German immigrants to Canada in the decades of the 1950s and 1960s before uh, German immigration uh, decreased significantly. Those immigrants came from a multitude of different backgrounds and carried with them a multitude of different experiences. Some were from the so-called Eastern territories and had lost uh, their homes and their livelihoods when they escaped the Russian advance. Others, like my parents, came from cities that had been severely affected by the Allied bombing campaigns and had spent their adolescence and early adulthood in bombed-out city centers and that were only slowly rebuilding and chose to emigrate, in essence, to begin a, a different life, um, one that was perhaps free of the memories of the war years. And I think there was still another group that perhaps sought to escape their own responsibility in the past. So it was really a, a, a mixture of a whole number of different backgrounds that made up this large group of, of immigrants. So it's difficult to speak of one sort of memory process. And I would imagine different German immigrant communities had different ways of dealing with the past. But I, what I found in general is that the focus on the, the hardship of immigration in many German Canadian families has become a means of not talking about German family participation in the Nazi past. Well, maybe we could switch gears here a little bit. You discuss several distinct generations in your book. Could you outline for us who these different generations were uh, and what made them distinct? When we discuss German memory, and when we speak to the history of the Holocaust, discussion is often in the context of generations. 
and typically uh, we refer to the first, second, and third generation. The first generation refers to the German perpetrators, enablers, and bystanders, participants in the Nazi regime, supporters of the Nazi regime, Germans who lived in Germany as adults during the 1930s and World War II. The second generation refers to their children, the children of the generation of perpetrators and bystanders. My parents are members of the second generation, though having been born in 1935, they're on the earlier side of that generation. The third generation refers to individuals like myself who are the grandchildren of the first generation, the generation of perpetrators and bystanders. Could you explain how this relates to this larger concept of intergenerational trauma and the different experiences that these groups have? The concept of intergenerational trauma was a notion that really began to be understood in the 1970s amongst the survivors and the descendants of the Holocaust. And that was that individuals, specifically members of the second generation, so the sons and the daughters of Holocaust survivors, were themselves experiencing symptoms of trauma, though they themselves had not actually lived through the Holocaust. These were the traumatic experiences that their parents, who had survived the horrors of the Holocaust, had in some way transferred. And and so the intergenerational transmission of trauma is this idea that aspects of the original trauma continue and can be transferred from one generation to the next. Whenever I think about or discuss the concept of intergenerational trauma, it always gives me pause. Certainly, what does it mean to use the concept of intergenerational trauma that began and that we as society began to become aware of through the understanding of what Holocaust survivors and their descendants went through. What does it mean to apply that concept to the German experience? And I think we have to be very careful there not to create some sort of uh, equivalency. And this is, of course, part of the problem with the German narrative of victimization in that the moment we speak about German suffering or victimization, then, of course, we are creating an equivalency between the experience of perpetrators and bystanders and their descendants and the experiences of victims and survivors of the Holocaust and their descendants. And that is a, a, a an enormous concern. So if we look at intergenerational trauma and we look at things like PTSD from armed conflict and the war generation that comes back with these experiences. How are Germans supposed to navigate and discuss this 
openly when it immediately becomes such fraught territory that there there's an immediate concern rightfully so about creating a false moral equivalency but at the same time one a concern that seems to close down any ability to have a public discussion of what were very serious traumatic events for the people who were involved in them the question of wartime trauma in germany is very important and very real there are a great many individuals all of whom are now older who experienced some version of wartime trauma speaking about the experience of individual wartime trauma is important i think no matter at what point in life one is there's an important difference to be made however between the experience of individuals and generalizing from the experience of individuals and what they may have gone through and what they may have struggled with as children and as adults in terms of what they had experienced and generalizing that to an entire group of people indeed an entire generation that lived during that period the narrative of german victimization oftentimes does precisely that it takes talk of individual wartime trauma and generalizes it to an entire population and this is of concern because it essentially provides a new narrative to go back and reinterpret what happened during that period and when it's focused on again in isolation then the moral context of history is missing and i'm not suggesting that talk about wartime trauma isn't important on the contrary it's fundamental my concern has to do with the generalization of what individuals experienced to an entire generation because all of us as individuals will go through and experience traumas in different ways some individuals will manage a trauma and find ways through it others will really struggle generally we don't know that in advance and i think we need to always deal with these particular issues very very carefully without giving way to the temptation to create grand narratives do members of the second and third generation then have a responsibility to look past the narrative of german suffering and confront the crimes of the nazi regime as a whole and the possible participation of family members uh, even though they aren't personally culpable for what happened i do believe that we have a moral obligation to confront the past and to know about the participation of our own family members in histories of perpetration certainly the holocaust and the extent of the heinous crimes of the holocaust stand out and 
we've learned that, that they can't be covered over, that even when they are covered over in silence, and my family's a great example of this, the feelings of, of worry, the fears of what may have happened, the concerns about one's own family participation in that past continue. They, we may seek to bury this history, but in a sense, it remains. And, uh, I think it continues to, if I can use the word, disrupt, uh, our present. We certainly see this in society more broadly. I mean, we've been speaking about the German context. And in fact, it's important to understand that Germany has done a, a great deal of work to confront the past. But we live in countries Canada and the United States with histories of perpetration. And we struggle both as Canadians and Americans to address these histories of perpetration, both within our own families in terms of their own participation in past criminal histories, but also as a society. And the effects of history don't disappear. The effects of historical crimes don't disappear. And I think we need only to look at those effects to understand that it's important to talk about that. And it's important to take the step of confronting the past, be it in society or in our own families. And I'm not suggesting it's easy, um, nor am I suggesting that the way that I did that, and the fact that I actually wrote about it publicly, which was admittedly extremely difficult, is necessarily the right way to go about it. But I think by creating a dialogue, being open to dialogue within families and within societies, I think we can really learn from what we discover and then apply that learning in the present. Is the the purpose of this kind of learning to heal oneself? Is it a way to recover from inherited trauma? Or does it have something to do with owing a debt to victims of histories of perpetration and their descendants? Writing this book was personally meaningful. There's no doubt of that. But I'm very hesitant, and indeed I would say I'm concerned, whenever anyone suggests that this process is necessarily therapeutic. I believe that this process of addressing the past is of a moral nature, that, that we have a moral obligation to know and address history. And in that sense, I, I would frame this not as a, a therapeutic pursuit, because when I talk about this aspect of my family history today, I often find it as difficult now as I did in the past. And I'm not sure that will ever go away. But I do feel that knowing about my histories, about my family's history, has enabled me to speak more openly and be more aware of and be more willing to address the current wrongs in the society in which I live. And with that food for thought, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. I'd like to thank Roger for taking the time to share his thoughts with all of us and you out there listening for taking the time to tune in and join us. If you're interested in picking up a copy of his book, 
It's available through Cambridge University Press or wherever fine monographs are sold under the title, Not in My Family, German Memory and Responsibility After the Holocaust. With that, we'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.